me in a short prayer before I begin. Father, as we come before you to look at your word in the context of obedience, teach us how you want us to behave in a world where selfishness and individualism predominate. Amen. Well, the theme of the sermon today is obedience, which follows on very well from Brian's talk last week on love, because in John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So obedience for the Christian is very much a heartfelt response to God's love for us. Why wouldn't we want to obey his commands as set out in scripture, both to please him and in the knowledge that it's ultimately for our own good? And yet we see, don't we, from a very young age, we try to push the boundaries and as teenagers and adults, we often stray and have to be brought back into line. So it's nothing new as we learn from our Old Testament reading in Jeremiah 7, verse 13. I spoke to you again and again, said the Lord to his people Israel, but you did not listen. The fundamental problem is that mankind has cut itself off from our father. Like the prodigal son, we've taken all the good things he's bestowed upon us and we've left home to worship other gods, money, status, symbols, icons of various kinds. And this provokes our father to anger. But as he says in verse 19, am I really the one? They are provoking. Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? And this is so relevant to us today as we wonder why so many things are going wrong with our planet. But unfortunately, even those who who care for the planet often cannot see or won't recognize because they do not recognize God, they do not believe in God, that causal connection which is made clear in verse 20, therefore my anger and my wrath will be poured out on man and beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground and it will burn and not be quenched. Just this week We've seen in the news that a large percentage of plant species are heading for extinction, in some cases before we even have time to study them properly. Jeremiah goes on, verse 21, and this is a stinging rebuke from God about burnt offerings. And let me explain by taking us back to Genesis 22, when God tested Abraham. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Abraham didn't hesitate. And you'll remember he was about to kill Isaac when God stopped him and said, Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your only son. 
absolute obedience there from Abraham. Later, God tells Abraham, because you have done this, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you obeyed me. So do we see that connection, that that beautiful promise that, that blessings will come to all when we, the people of God, obey? So back to Jeremiah, verse 21. Burnt offerings were never to be eaten. Some of the other offerings could be, peace offerings and so on, could be eaten. But burnt offerings, never. But God says, go ahead, eat the burnt offerings, because yours mean nothing to me. The rituals that you've been going through for hundreds of years, as an outside, outer sign of what's inside your heart, mean nothing to me. Eat them. Verse 22, he goes on. When I brought your forefathers out of Egypt, I not only asked them, for burnt offerings, but I gave them this command, obey me, walk in the ways I command you, that it may go well for you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward, not forward. And this could well describe the world today, couldn't it? Backward, not forward. Of course, you know, we've made technological advances, but inside, in our hearts, in our attitudes, in many ways we've gone backward, haven't we? He goes on, verse 27, a warning for us all in the Christian community. When you tell them this, when you warn them, They will not listen. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore, say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Truth has indeed perished in many ways, hasn't it, today? We see proof of this in in fake news or fabricated news, political and media spin. We see it on the internet. Pitfalls abound and traps are everywhere for the unwary or unfortunate. They won't listen, but tell them anyway. Warn them. We are to be like the watchman on the ancient city walls you know when we see danger coming we are to shout that's our job how or whether the people process what we know to be the truth is up to them and up to God and this I think should be a relief to the Christian the outcome is up to God our duty is to obey 
to proclaim the truth. Each, of course, in our own way and mostly, I think, by by the way we live and sometimes with words. So our Old Testament passage ends on a sombre note. Truth has vanished from people's lips. But there is hope because the very embodiment of truth itself, Jesus, has come into the world and in our Gospel reading conveys an important message in his parable of the wedding feast, which he likens to the kingdom of heaven. Our king in this parable is God, the Son, Jesus, and the servants, the apostles, and their successors down the ages, us basically, whose duty it is to call those invited to the banquet. Now initially, these were the nation of Israel, uh, many of whom did not accept. So in verse 4, God sends more servants out to persuade the guests to attend, but still they refuse, literally in in the Greek, but not caring, they went off. One to his field, another to his trading, to his emporia, And the rest killed the king's servant. Something, of course, which is happening around the world to Christians today. Persecution is rife and few political leaders care to do anything about it. But verse 7 has a warning that the king's patience is finite. The wicked receive their punishment, destruction, awaits those who willfully refuse God's love and ill-treat his messengers. So after dealing with the wicked, the king nevertheless perseveres and says to his servants, the original invitees were not worthy. Go into the streets. And it's very interesting here because literally in the Greek, this is the partings of the ways. It's an indication of the importance of this invitation at the end of time when God is going to wrap up history as we know it and why the first on the guest list were so wrong to dismiss this wonderful invitation. You see, it was free and they didn't care. They dismissed it. And don't you often find that when something is free... It's not appreciated, or it's not valued. I remember, I think it was Hagendas ice cream struggled to begin with, apparently, in the US until they had the bright idea of slightly rebranding it and doubling the price, making it appear exclusive. And then it took off because people thought, well, you know, if it's that expensive, it must be good. <laughs> Anything that's free is often undervalued. So the servants went out into the streets and the command was not just go, but the sense is be going, continue to go. Invite all, good and bad, in other words, sinners of all degrees, until the hall was full. 
and it was full. And verse 11, but entering to behold the guests and no doubt to check that all in this sumptuous banquet was as it should be, the king saw a man without the proper wedding garments. Now, in the East at that time, apparently wedding garments were often, because they were expensive, were often provided for honoured guests by the hosts whose servants would literally dress the guests. An insight here from Isaiah 61.10, I delight greatly in the Lord, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And this is the analogy here. So all the other guests had accepted God's robe of righteousness and the garments of salvation. But this man had refused and tried to get in 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 his own clothes, which, following the analogy, we might liken, for example, to his own good works, which were totally inadequate for this royal feast, which is why the king asks him in verse 12, how did you get in here without the proper garments? And the man is speechless. So just step back for a moment and picture the scene. You've got this most magnificent hall bedecked in all its glory. You've got all the other guests in their finery, which has been provided by the host. And you've got this chap with his own clothes standing in front of the king, speechless, because he hasn't got an answer. And let's take that as an encouragement, I would suggest, for us today as we go out into the parting of the ways with the invitation. This stunning invitation that's free to people to come to the feast at the end of time, which is like the beginning of eternity. We would not want, would we, our friends and loved ones in particular, actually anybody, to arrive at that point as they will, as we all will, and for the king to say, where's your robes? Where's the righteousness and salvation that my servants kept offering you for nothing time and time again? And they're going to be speechless because they're not going to have an answer. I hope that's a a spur to us because by rejecting the righteousness of Jesus, this man excluded himself. So the king 
had him bound like a criminal and ejected, not just from the hall and into the street, but we're told into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a bizarre expression of the frustration of those who realise, like the man, too late, the huge error that they've made in continually rejecting God's love and dismissing or mistreating his followers who try to provide and offer that invitation. So the powers that be realised that this and other parables of Jesus were directed at them and had already sought ways, of course, to attack him. But now, in verse 15, the Pharisees plot to see how they can ensnare Jesus in what he says. Does that ring any bells? Uh, Aren't many in the media today hunting all authority figures or celebrities in a similar way? And the sense of the Greek here is how they might trap him in a word. You're just trying to get him to say the wrong word, just one word and we've got him. So they send their disciples, along with the Herodians as witnesses, and with sweet words of flattery, you know, it's almost reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, you know, the serpent, you know, we know you are a man of integrity and defer to no one. Tell us then, is it right to give tribute to Caesar or not? This was the poll tax which every citizen had to pay to the Roman authorities and which particularly rankled with the Jews. But Jesus sees through their ploy and says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Hypocrite is a wonderful word. In the Greek, it invokes the masks that actors in ancient dramas used to hold in front of their faces, you know, either the funny one, the happy one, or the sad one. And um, it obviously... um, presented their different persona, the one they were meant to play. And the imagery, I think, is appropriate for some of today's leaders, isn't it? (laughs) You know, you can imagine them. You know, which face are we going to put on today? You know, is it a smile? Is it a frown? Or how are we going to pull the wool over people's eyes today? (laughs) Show me the coin used to pay the tax. They bring... A denarius. I think we've got a picture of a denarius that might be coming. There it is. It was a small silver coin, the equivalent of a day's wage. The Roman Senate minted copper coins, whereas gold and silver could only be minted by the emperor, whose head was stamped upon them. Whose portrait icon is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they answer. Then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, is the killer reply. 
See, it was meant to be a killer question, (laughs) but this is the killer reply. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, literally the things of Caesar. So not only the poll tax, the coin, but also all the obligations of a subject, loyalty, obedience to laws, whether or not you like them or agree with them. And isn't that a challenge for some citizens today, particularly in the West, I think, where many try to ensnare their leaders with a word, you know, killer questions from celebrity media, examining every word and mercilessly exposing errors or poking fun at faux pas, regardless of any extenuating circumstances, quick to call out failures and demand resignations. You know, I've often wondered how our country might change if citizens simply decided to obey laws and to wholeheartedly support governments. You know, in their heart. Not obsequiously, but but just saying, okay, I didn't vote for you lot, but you're in, so I'm going to support you. Because Jesus calls upon us to obey our earthly leaders whom God has put in positions of authority. That's perhaps a helpful way to look at it. You know, we voted for them. But God has put them there. This is the first part of the answer, though. And the second part is, and the things of God to God. So we followers of Jesus who are already citizens of heaven are duty-bound, love-bound, heart-bound to give the things of God to him. Repentance, faith, Love, worship, obedience. And it's interesting to note that Jesus utters these duties, these two duties, in the same breath to Caesar and to God because they're not incompatible. In fact, you could say that complying with proper legal earthly authority is a part of our being good Christians because the earthly domain is a part of and ultimately, of course, subservient to God's kingdom. The denarius bore the image of Caesar and emperors come and go. But we as Christians bear the image of the one true and eternal God and the more we obey his commands, the more like him we become. Obedience is really good for us. Amen.